Immigration is not a right. It is a privilege granted by the people of the United States to those we choose to admit. The most urgent immigration problem we face today is the unauthorized entry of hundreds of thousands of illegals. Unlawful immigration is not acceptable. We need to make deportation a part of a credible immigration policy. When immigrants are less well-educated and less skilled, they may pose economic hardships for the most vulnerable of Americans. A large-scale agricultural guest worker program is not in our national interest. I urge the Congress to adopt tough policies needed to verify employment authorization. If a person is here unlawfully, he should be entitled to no benefits. One people, the American people. Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And what you just heard was a special introduction, different from our usual intro. All of those clips were from Barbara Jordan, the late Barbara Jordan, who was chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform back in the mid-1990s. Barbara Jordan, who passed away some 25 years ago at this point, was a notable figure. She was the first black congresswoman from the South, from Texas specifically. She played an important role in the Watergate hearings as a relatively junior member of the House of Representatives, but she's most notable as chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, which produced lots of research and significant policy recommendations. And unlike a lot of commissions, which, you know, sort of are kind of a dodge, a way of avoiding doing anything, the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, a bipartisan commission, actually influenced legislation. It was their report and their recommendations formed the framework of legislation that was considered and voted on. Part of it succeeded, part of it didn't, back during the mid-1990s. And now that may seem like ancient history to a lot of people. You don't even have to be that young to consider 25 years ago to be ancient history. But it isn't, because the recommendations of the Jordan Commission, which were based on extensive research testimony from people, including some from the Center for Immigration Studies, really points toward the direction our immigration policy really needs to take to achieve some kind of stability. You're never going to solve it. Immigration isn't a problem to solve. It's a challenge that all modern societies, all countries of any kind, really have to deal with in one way or another. But the Jordan Commission's recommendations laid out a framework, a roadmap, that actually is helpful to understand if we're going to achieve a more stable, less contentious immigration debate in the future. And here to talk about it is Eric Ruark from Numbers USA. And the reason we're having Eric here is that Numbers USA, which is an advocacy group on the citizen action group on the immigration issue with millions of members, very influential in Congress, is that Numbers USA, in a sense, is kind of the unofficial 
steward of the Jordan Commission's reports and research because no one else seems to be kind of preserving it and making a case for it. For instance, the LBJ School at the University of Texas used to host online all of the reports of the Jordan Commission because Barbara Jordan was tied to University of Texas, and they seem to have disappeared. Maybe they're still somewhere, but I couldn't find them anymore. And really, Numbers USA is the one place you can still find, and the organization that still affirmatively makes the case for the general approach that the Jordan Commission recommended, which was lowering immigration but being clearer about who we're going to let in and about enforcing, you know, unapologetically enforcing immigration laws. So Eric Ruark is here to talk to us about it. And Eric, I don't remember your title, but if you could introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about what the Jordan Commission was and who Barbara Jordan was. Well, I am the director of research there. And so, you know, I'm tasked with responsibility. One of them is maintaining our Jordan pages we have on our website, numbersusa.com. Two pages. One is dedicated to the commission, the U.S. Immigration Reform Commission, which is known as the Barbara Jordan Commission because of Barbara Jordan, who the other page is about her and her life, which is a very extraordinary career in public life. And a figure who, as you pointed out, is sort of, her career has been obscured because her last act in public life was recommending reductions in immigration and steps to end illegal immigration, including not awarding amnesty to people here illegally. And so, as you mentioned, at the University of Texas, the reports, I don't know if you can still find them, but you have to search really hard. And so we want to make it easy for people, uh, easily available and accessible to people, because there is, you know, testimony she gave numerous times in Congress. She spoke out publicly a lot about it at press conferences. And in the report itself, I was, when I was thinking, oh, well, how am I going to present this? I thought, well, I'll just print out the report and read it <laughs> through. But I don't think we it's have time. It, that, yeah, yeah, it is for this, for this format. But that, that's the thing is every time I return to it and delve into it, it's just a fantastic policy document that seems to, for many people, have been just sort of brushed aside. And it's not, it doesn't enter into the discussion today when it comes to how we should proceed with reform, right? At, most people would say the system is broken, but most of the reforms they offer aren't things which would fix it, at least according to what the Jordan Commission recommended. And so I guess I'll start, if you want, just a little background to sure. how the commission came about. And I think most people who are aware of immigration history, particularly the history of immigration law, would point to the 1965 Act, which is the Hart-Seller Act. And that was an amendment, I believe, to the 1952 yes. INA, Immigration yep. Naturalization Act. But it was a very sweeping amendment, and it formed the basis for our modern system, the family preference-based system. And the premise of the Hart-Seller Act was to open up the immigration system to basically non-Europeans to provide opportunities to people around the world to immigrate to the United States. That was the premise. The promise was it was not going to affect the numbers much. It might expand it a little bit, but it wasn't going to increase immigration very much. And there's and its sponsors are on the record over and over and over saying exactly correct, that, including uh, Ted Kennedy. I, I was going to mention uh, yeah. Senator Kennedy, who made some famous or infamous, I guess maybe how, however you want to frame them, remarks, which if you look back today are sort of striking. 
And putting Kennedy aside, you know, whether you believe or, or not the promises that were made, I, I, you know, I think and I think the consensus is they didn't realize the people who were writing the legislation and putting it through, the, the, the real effect it was going to have in, in boosting the numbers. But it did. And it is true to point to that as sort of if you view the numbers today as a problem, it's 65 law. But I don't think a lot of people either know about or understand the effect that the 1990 Immigration Act had. Before that, you had the 1986 IRCA amnesty. Signed by Reagan, about 3 million people received amnesty. And so, and Chuck Schumer was instrumental in putting it through the House and promising that this would be the only amnesty we would have. We're going to get tough on illegal immigration. We're going to crack down on criminal employers who are hiring illegal aliens. And that never came to fruition. The amnesty happened. And of course, the enforcement, which has been our argument since, is, you know, every time you do amnesty first, the enforcement never follows. Right. And so the 1990 Immigration Act followed upon that. And, and in a sense, the 90 Act was sort of the part two of IRCA. I mean, a lot yeah. of people saw it that way, that I, IRCA I, I, dealt yeah. with illegals and the 90 Act was part two dealing with legal immigration. Mm-hmm. And that was the first Bush, H.W. Mm-hmm. And he came in, and if you think back to New World Order, which is what he was promoting, which really is you know, sort of a more global approach to the economy. There's a lot of outsourcing of jobs offshoring. And he was really pushing for an increase in legal immigration, as you mentioned. And the 1990 Immigration Act really blew off the doors to the point where we're at now, since 90, about a million, a little over a million a year, legal immigration. And it didn't deal with the problem of illegal immigration that the 1986 Act was supposed to deal with. That it, you know, it wasn't enforcement. They didn't learn their lesson from 86 and 90. They just didn't deal with it. Well, it was still kind of in the works, too, in a sense. you know. I mean, that's correct. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. I guess we can't say it really failed. They couldn't have recognized. If you wanted to fix it, you wouldn't have recognized the major problem by 90. And, and we look at the 90 Act. You had what, the creation of EB-5, the investor visa, which is expired, hopefully not to be you know, resurrected, we'll but we'll see. see. If Congress resurrects this by the time we air this, I think we'll know. But at least <laughs> right. at the time we're taping this, EB-5 has turned into a pumpkin. It created the diversity visa lottery, which gives away 50000 every year through a lottery system. H-1B, guest worker, tech visa. But one of the good things we can point to that the 1990 law created or mandated was an immigration commission to examine the existing immigration law and review and evaluate its effects and make recommendations for how it could be changed. And that was the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, which is known as the Jordan Commission because of its chairwoman, Barbara Jordan. And you mentioned some of her accomplishments. You know, it, again, like reading the Jordan report, it would take forever to get through all the things that she did in her life, a very a short life. She died, she was almost 60. Uh, she died in 1996. She was born in, in 36 in, in Houston, Texas, still segregated South, always showed academic promise. She ended up going to college at Texas Southern, I believe. It was a historically black college. Was a national uh, debate champion. Ended up going to law school at at Boston University. Went back and practiced law in Houston for a time and and unsuccessfully ran for the Texas House a couple of times. Eventually was elected to the Texas Senate. And she was the first African-American woman to serve in the Texas Senate. And she became eventually the president pro temp. And I don't know if this is still the case in Texas, but 
One day, both the governor and the lieutenant governor were not in the state. She was the acting governor of Texas for one day, which is a pretty neat thing. And the interesting thing is, and this is in relation to this, is she was both black and a woman yes. in Texas. Yes. And this is, we're talking the 60s, right? This, this is, ni- yes, she was elected, either. I believe, 1968. But, right. Yeah. And nonetheless, part of her gift was that she was actually able to work in that system quite successfully. I mean, you don't get elected president pro tem of a body unless, you know, you're able to kind of work the old boys network and all that. She Particularly, was actually, yes, in Texas at that very time. Very effective. Yes. I mean, this is Texas that, you know, LBJ came out of, right? Right. right. So she obviously had to command the respect of her colleagues across right. you know, the board, which she did throughout her career. So she was elected to the House of Representatives in Congress in 72. And you mentioned her rise to real, really to national prominence was, I guess it was the impeachment inquiry. She might, I think she gave the opening statement. Some people will point to that as the reason that Nixon decided to resign. I don't know if that's true, anecdotal, but I can't imagine the White House seeing that speech. And it's, you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's used not just for political history, but, you know, example of powerful, you know, political uh, oration. Right. I mean, it really is, you know, I would recommend anyone if you just want to learn about American history and, and, and the, the political climate surrounding Watergate. And that brought her to public attention. And she gave the keynote speech at the DNC in 76. Carter was the nominee. And she did receive one vote delegate for, for president right. in 76. She also gave, I think there was three keynote speakers. She was one of them in 96 for Clinton, who eventually awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 94. And so when the commission was created, Bush was the president, but Clinton was the one who appointed her chair. He was president at the time. I mean, just to fill in just for details, there was an earlier chairman. It was uh, Cardinal Law, Bernard Law, the Archbishop of Boston, who was very, very briefly was chairman that's before some, her. I, that's I something mean, I did no, not know. He had no influence on it. It was right. a very brief thing. Right. And then at the end, after Jordan died, we're skipping ahead a little bit, right. Shirley Huffstetler, who was a former mm-hmm. Carter administration official, was chairwoman kind of to just turn off the lights and wrap it up. Right, because at that point, the reports had been... right. But Jordan was Finished. the one, she's the one who shaped the work and Certainly. the reports of the commission. So it's, it's, it's actually appropriate to refer to it as the Jordan Commission. Right. And you could speculate who else might have done a better job. I can't think of someone no. who would have been a better appointee. And that was the thing is, as we mentioned earlier, she commanded the respect of her colleagues across the board. And she was not interested in politicizing the commission or making it something that was captured by special interests. I mean, her guiding principle was what is the best immigration policy for the American people? And they spent, you know, years, few years figuring this out. And it wasn't that she was a figurehead who could put her name on the commission and sort of give it credibility. She was actively involved in shaping it and sort of maybe not whipping into shape, but sort of convincing the other members. And I think all but one of the recommendations were unanimous votes, Mm -hmm. making the arguments and getting people to make concessions to come to something that they could present to, to Congress eventually, ultimately, and say this is the blueprint going forward that needs to be followed. And in a sense, the commission did that or was that kind of commission because she was chairwoman. And what I mean by that is, you know, appointing a commission is kind of a dodge here in Washington. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's something you stick mm-hmm. in a bill to kind of buy off people or a president will just come out, do it on his own, just to create the pretense of action. But she wasn't, like you said, she was not interested in a pretextual 
commission. She actually took this seriously, and because of that, the other members of the commission took it seriously, who really were across the board. I mean, there was the head of the Immigration Lawyers Association, a Democratic congressman, a couple of former INS officials under Reagan, also the first employee of the Center for Immigration Studies, Richard Estrada. I did was, not, he was. He, he was briefly. I, I, I mean, he was on contract. Yeah, yeah. I did not know. Yeah, that. he was briefly. He was the first employee that our founder, David Simcox, retired foreign service officer, hired him to kind of get the thing off the ground. And he was at that point a columnist at the Dallas Morning right, News. Right. Again, a very serious person. So this really was a broad spectrum of people. And Jordan herself, just, I mean, we haven't been explicit about it. She was a Democrat, she was a partisan Democrat. But took this job seriously, and I think the reason for that is she genuinely was a patriot. She was a liberal Democrat, probably not what you would call a progressive today, but definitely a liberal Democrat who actually loved America and loved the Constitution and wanted to do the right thing here. And I think that's that's one of the reasons this report has this value. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, no, I, I think that's a fantastic point to make and one that needs to be made discussing this commission in the context of other commissions is that it's usually a way to pretend that you're actually addressing an important issue while not doing anything or continue to do what you want to do as a politician while showing the American public or trying to demonstrate to them that you're serious about their concerns. And that's what distinguishes this commission is that it was not that at all. And you hit on a couple of things which I wrote in my notes to make sure I didn't forget to raise is there's no other way to describe Barbara Jordan than a patriot. I mean, that's what she was. That's who she was. And the other is Richard Estrada. I wanted to just touch on some of the other members. Uh, Michael Teitelbaum, he's right. done work for CIS. He was vice chairman, I think. Of yeah, the I think that, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And his big thing was, it still is, I know he was on a panel just a couple years ago here, STEM, tech workers, right. and the effect that the immigration system has on, on those workers, U.S. workers. Uh, and Estrada, you know, I, I wanted to bring him up because he was just fantastic. And he was Hispanic writer for Dallas, you say Dallas Morning Dallas News? Dallas Morning News, yeah. He was born about 20 miles north of the border in New Mexico. And so he talked a lot about how immigration affects Hispanic Americans. Right. Uh, very outspoken, but very well-spoken. And there is a good interview he did about immigration. I don't know if it was while he was on the commission, but uh, you can find it if you, if you just Google it. Who was the interview with? I haven't. I can't uh, remember. Okay. I don't remember. I just remember watching it and just being struck by. If we find it, we'll put it in the show. It's a, notes. Yeah, it's if a, it's not there, you'll know we couldn't find it. But he was—he's fantastic. So he right. was a great member. You mentioned Bruce Morrison was a Democratic member of Congress. And the interesting thing about Morrison—he was one of the architects of the 1990 law. So he's on a commission that's examining what his work basically. I mean, he was instrumental in both the visa lottery and the H-1B. Right. And so he's on a commission that's looking at what he just helped pass and basically ended up voting, recommending to undermine or at least change, reform a lot of what he had, had done. But he went along with it. Right. He's an interesting character. And so you're right, Jordan shaped this commission. She drove it. She wasn't, like I said, a figurehead. And, and the recommendations, they put out guiding principles, which if we read them now makes sense. But if you think about immigration policy since the commission and how it's played out, none of these things really guide our immigration system today. You know, it should have clear goals and the priorities must define U.S. immigration policy, right? It must have a purpose. And if I were to ask you, you, you could articulate what you think our, the purpose should be, but most Americans just say we're a nation of immigrants and a nation of laws, but that's not policy, right? Or, right. or whatever, you know, sort of platitudes they might come up with. They said we have to define a purpose and then come up with 
policies essentially that suit a mission, that a mission statement for the immigration policy itself. Yeah, that's a good way to start, right? right? Instead of just every interest group gets what they want, and we throw it together, and we call that a system, right? An immigration system, effective means of enforcement, right? You always say this in Numbers USA: you need to set a limit and enforce those limits. That was that came from the Jordan Commission, right? Right. And what a lot of people don't realize, I guess, or maybe they don't know much about the Jordan Commission at all, but they were adamantly opposed to amnesty. And putting it in the context, as you mentioned, the 86 amnesty really hadn't played out to the point where we can look back and say, yes, it failed. But they were looking back at 86 and saying, you know, we don't need more amnesty. Amnesty was off the table for them. And I think important, and Barbara Jordan spoke about this, but this was explicitly expressed throughout the report was immigration policy must protect U.S. workers against unfair competition, right? It wasn't that businesses don't have an interest, which we must respect and you know, take into account, but immigration policy doesn't exist to suit businesses' demands, right? We have right. to look at it and how it plays out for the American worker, and they must be prioritized, as particularly the most vulnerable workers. And we ran I mean, a series of commercials using Barbara Jordan. It was a public speech she gave, but she made that point. The most vulnerable workers need to be protected, and we don't need to be bringing in foreign workers when we have workers here who need jobs. Right. And comprehensive immigration reform has gotten a bad name, rightfully, at this point. But when we think about the comprehensive approach of the George Commission, it was reduce legal immigration mm-hmm. and take steps to prevent illegal immigration, which means border security, but also they were correct in targeting employers. And the thing about Barbara Jordan and the commission is they weren't attacking any group. They weren't blaming it on immigrants. They weren't blaming it on employers. You know, they were saying employers should be held responsible, but it wasn't anyone's fault. They were saying, we're going to do something that benefits everyone, but most importantly, first and foremost, benefits broadly as possible the American people. And so Barbara Jordan is very clear about immigration has benefits. It has benefited this country in the past. It can continue to benefit it. We need to understand that, but immigration policy needs to be beneficial, right? Because immigrants benefit the United States doesn't mean more is always better. She had an article in the New York Times about the Americanization idea about assimilation, and the George Commission prioritized English language. And they also prioritized skills. You know, they understood, and it's even more important today, that in our economy, bringing in a lot of low-skilled workers is not good for the low-skilled workers coming in. And it's especially not good for the low-skilled workers who are already in the United States. Right. So what are some of the specific things, just without going into super deep in the weeds, what are kind of the high points of the legal immigration changes they recommended? Well, it kept family-based, but it reduced the numbers. And it narrowed the categories. Well, yeah. The big thing was it cut chain migration. And that's what we've been pushing for. And I know you have been pushing for it as well. So essentially that means... Immigrants who come in can sponsor their children, their spouse and minor children. And they can't, you know, once they become citizens, sponsor their siblings. If someone said to us at Numbers USA, would you take the Jordan Commission as a, you know, as a piece of legislation? Of course we would. You know, in an ideal world, we might tweak a little bit. And one of the things would be not allowing parents to come in right. on immigrant visas. Non-immigrant visas, we would suggest, would be better. And that was one of the things, and I think I would never put you know, words in George's mouth or say that commission would have done this. But at the time, there weren't as many older immigrants coming in, and there weren't as many parents coming in being right. sponsored by the kids. So there wasn't the same numbers as today. 
the Jordan Commission did stress the use of public benefits by immigrants coming in and said that we should take special steps to ensure that, as much as possible, immigrants were coming in and going directly onto welfare or using public entitlements. So that was something that they recommended. But cutting out chain migration by keeping family-based intact but cutting out chain migration reduced it from about 30% from what it was at the time that the commission was working. Right, right. In other words, the total. The total. The total. total annual um, emission. Yeah, uh, yeah, of everybody. Yeah, it was, I think the estimate was it would have reduced it to 550, 550. to 600,000 yeah. roughly because it would change a little bit every year, but it would it was about a 30% cut. And so the family base was 400,000, and then you had employment base of 100,000, mm-hmm. and refugees, 50,000, which is generous. Right. But they didn't view that as a floor, right? That was a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And they did allow for an extraordinary circumstances for the admission of more refugees. They recognized that there might be situations that call for more refugees. But again, that was not, this is the baseline and every year we're going to expand it. Right. The expansion side would say, you know, we need to let everyone in who wants to get here, basically, because everyone's a refugee who wants to get in, who can't get in any other way. Right. So it would have eliminated the visa lottery, Mm -hmm. which is a very contentious issue today. But, you know, a lot of these recommendations might have been opposed by, say, the Immigration Lawyers Association or Chamber of Commerce. At the time, I don't remember the political debate surrounding it. So I'm looking backwards, having learned from it. I don't remember at the time it being controversial, but looking back through the historical lens, I really don't find, and this is because of Barbara Jordan's influence, people attacking her or the commission's recommendations. And Clinton, at the time, President Bill Clinton promised to implement these recommendations when they were presented, or once they were finalized. Right. The problem that happened with, with that is Barbara Jordan died in 1996. She had multiple sclerosis. She had health problems throughout her life. She was 59, almost 60. And so once she passed away, the impetus behind the commission and its recommendations and the moral force was not there. Specifically, her role in getting Democrats to go along. Because, you know, when she presented the recommendations to Clinton, not to be too crude about it, but he's a dirtbag. He had no <laughs> he had no ability to no moral authority over her. In other words, right. he had oh, to respect right, her right, moral right. authority. When she passed away, he then was in a position to basically do whatever he wanted to do. And the interesting thing is, unlike a lot of recommendations by commissions, this actually was incorporated in legislation. The House and the Senate. This is because of the Gingrich the Republicans took over the Congress for the first time in almost two generations. And so each house introduced legislation based on these commission recommendations. But once she'd passed away, it freed the president from having to back them. And it gave him the political room to basically say no. And anyway, it would go on on the, uh, on the politics of it. Well, you, know, you have to understand this is, I mean, Bill Clinton was a new Democrat. I don't know if he would describe himself that way, but that's how he was portrayed. And it certainly... The transformation during the Clinton years from a party that was supposedly dedicated to worker protections and you know, maybe tariffs and offshoring of jobs, protecting manufacturing jobs. Bill Clinton was a NAFTA. You know, Bush was, who preceded him was a NAFTA proponent, but Clinton was the one who finalized it. Right. And so you, know, you have to put it in that context that Bill Clinton wasn't someone who would have wanted to cut immigration. He did recognize the political 
challenge of illegal immigration. And so in 96, they did pass. And, and of course, the Republicans had the House, Gingrich, and were pushing this, which was a pretty good illegal immigration bill. The interesting thing about that is that the original version of those bills in the House and Senate included the legal and illegal immigration elements. In other words, the legal immigration cuts from the Jordan Commission were in those bills. But after she passed away, what happened was that the opponents of the legal cuts, the Republican opponents, mind you, were able to work with the Democratic president. And the, the cry at the time was split the bill. So they split the legal recommendations from the Jordan Commission and the illegal ones into two separate bills, freeing them to kill the measures that would have cut chain migration and the lottery and the rest of it, while still voting for the, what became the 96 enforcement bill, and thereby saying we're tough on immigration without actually cutting immigration. Without cutting it or reforming the guest worker right. part, which was something the George Commission talked about. They wanted to cut out low-skilled guest workers. Right. They did allow for high-skilled guest workers, but not the way it operates today. It had to make sure that you are protecting Americans, right? Right. But they wanted to eliminate the low-skilled components because they didn't think it was necessary. Now, E-Verify wasn't around then, but certain things were in the works, which eventually became E-Verify, and they did talk about a verification system. They didn't recommend building a wall along the southern border. Right. What they did recommend was not going after employers. The way they framed it was employers who want to do the right thing should have the tools to be able to do the right things. Right. And so those who aren't, you know, criminal employers are always going to try to find a way around the law. So you want to make sure that you have something in place to target them while giving tools to employers who want to do the right thing, the opportunity to hire people who are authorized to work in the United States. And you can read it, you know, and we can read into it and say, well, they were endorsing E-Verify. They weren't because they didn't have right. that technology, but... No, they were clearly endorsing what, the concept of The what, concept I mean, absolutely yeah, was, yeah. Oh, was absolutely. included. Sure. Yeah. And that actually had been called for in some form, even in the 86 law, like pilots to look into it, mm -hmm. and then the 1996 law that resulted from the Jordan Commission recommendations mandated some pilot programs, one of which turned into E-Verify. So in a sense, they sort of did endorse E-Verify, or they were you know, one of the motive forces behind what now exists as E-Verify. Yeah, I would say that. But then someone could say, oh, no, they weren't. But, but right. read, the, read the report. And that's, that's the thing is, if anyone reads the report, you're not going to come away with a conclusion that's different than mine. You may not like that. Ultimately, for me, you know, a tragedy of this whole thing is that Barbara Jordan was one of the great public figures, at least of the last century. I mean, just extraordinary person whose life now sort of is glossed over. Her achievements are because if you highlight what she did, her last act of public service, if you highlight any of her life, right. what, what people might realize is what she did at the end of her life, which was this commission. And for people who don't like that, particularly now the Democratic Party, She's sort of... Kind of an embarrassment almost. I, yeah, sense. I think so. I, I'll give an example. Chuck Schumer, who's now a majority leader, who's promising another amnesty 30 years later. And increases in immigration. Oh, yeah, right? huge yeah. increases right. for Black History Month. And Barbara Jordan's birthday is in February, so it's, it'd be perfect you know, to highlight her during mm -hmm. Black History Month. And every day during Black History Month, Schumer was highlighting another black American who was achieved things in different walks of life. And so Numbers USA would tweet, 
Barbara Jordan. What about Barbara right. Jordan? Of course, he wouldn't touch Barbara Jordan. Obviously. Now, you could speculate as to why, but I don't think you and I have to be geniuses to come to the conclusion of why he would not want to do that. And that's really unfortunate because putting immigration aside, there's so much that she has to offer people who want to study her life. I mean, she's an inspiration, inspirational figure who did so much more than, than the commission, but the commission is an outstanding piece of work and I think is a capstone to her public service. What would you say in closing, why is this still relevant? Other than, in other words, if you're not interested in history, why in thinking about immigration policy is the work of the commission still relevant today rather than just kind of a historical artifact? That was a huge pushback that we got when we, we ran the, uh, well, we ran them commercials a series of times with Barbara Jordan. We ran them in the primaries, the last election, presidential primaries during the debates and you know, sort of. Why is this relevant? Why It's 25, 27 years ago. This, right. this is not relevant. And it's kind of extraordinary to think, you know, it's like saying, why do we have a statue of Martin Luther King Jr. in Washington, D.C.? Well, that's 1968. That's ancient history, right? And so certain things, you know, particularly when it comes to immigration policy, circumstances change. I heard you talking the other day about technology, how that really changed the way people, you know, it, it keeps them connected to their country of origin as right. opposed to leaving you or gone forever. Right. And the communications were cut off in large part. There are things that, you know, don't necessarily carry forward, but there's been nothing to supplant it. You know, no one's come along and said, this is a better plan. And the structure, the basis of this plan, it's an extraordinary document, but the specifics of it are still good policy. Right. We want to make sure that we have family-based immigration, yes, but we want to end chain. We want to go after employers who are hiring illegally. We understand that immigration is a benefit to this country, but that doesn't mean that having an open immigration system benefits the American people. And, and that's, you know, the guiding principle of the commission is what makes it relevant today is we need to see what's good for Americans and we need to implement policies that provide for the American people's interest as opposed to the special interest to control D.C. At the, at the moment. But anyone who's interested in specific recommendations and policies they're still, like I say, we could make a tweak here and there, but really they hold up very, very well. You could basically take it off the shelf now. And- uh, as I said, we would do that in a heartbeat. Right, right. And so it is relevant not just from its guiding principles, but because of the actual recommendations are still very much something that Congress should, should follow. There were a couple sentences I wanted to read from the report that I think really both are common sense, but also show why today's immigration expansionist, today's Democrats, would consider her, in a sense, a kind of embarrassment almost. I mean, let me read a couple sentences. This is from, I think, the final report. Deportation is crucial. Credibility in immigration policy can be summed up in one sentence. Those who should get in, get in. Those who should be kept out, are kept out. And those who should not be here will be required to leave. The top priorities for detention and removal, of course, are criminal aliens, but for the system to be credible, people actually have to be deported at the end of the process, unquote. And that is a radical, would be a radical statement today. You asked me, you know, why is this relevant? And, and, you know, I can go on, but who can sum it up better? And that, that's the beauty of Barbara Jordan is she's eloquent to the point and still relevant. Right. Well, thank you, Eric Ruark from Numbers USA for talking about Barbara Jordan and the Jordan Commission. The reports and the pages on Barbara Jordan 
are at Numbers USA's site, which is numbers with an S, numbersusa.com. I think maybe just put Barbara Jordan in the search box or well, something. Well, right on maybe. the right hand side, oh, there's, it is. A, okay. there's a picture of her. So you okay. click on that, yeah. it'll take you too. So it'll take you right there. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. And we will maybe have you back at some point in the future. Thank you. For my closing commentary today, I wanted to talk about something that kind of relates to the Jordan Commission report that Eric and I were just talking about. And this relates to what the level of immigration should be, or rather how we think about the number of people we let in. Because very often there is this idea of a sort of top-down determination of what the level of immigration should be. In other words, you pick a number. Is it a million? Is it half a million? Is it 100,000? Is it 5 million? Whatever it is, it's, it's sort of picking a number and then making things fit into that. One of the things I learned from the Jordan Commission report is how to think about this numbers issue, and that is to say in a bottom-up way. In other words, not pick a number of immigrants you want to let in, but rather decide what categories of immigrants you think should be admitted and then let in all of them every year. So you define the categories narrowly or broadly, but you don't create these uh, kind of a mismatch between what the numerical caps are and what the demand is. And so, for instance, and this is my preference, I think this is a general take that a lot of immigration skeptics would agree with, is that if you're the husband, wife, or minor child of a U.S. citizen, you should be able to get in. That's the way the law is now. And I think pretty much everybody agrees with that, whatever they think about immigration, you know, without numerical caps. In other words, if, you, if it's a genuine marriage or a genuine adoption, and there's a lot of fraud, obviously, in those areas, but putting that aside, if you really travel to Colombia for work and you meet somebody and you marry her and you want to bring her back, you have every right to expect that she is not going to have to wait in some kind of numerical queue for, you know, four years before her number comes up. There shouldn't be numerical caps on that narrow category. So husbands, wives, and little kids should all be let in every year without numerical limitation, although it's going to require strict scrutiny because, like I said, there's lots and lots of fraud there. And then for skilled immigration and for humanitarian immigration, refugees and asylum, again, define it very narrowly or maybe another metaphor would be to set the bar very high, but then let in everybody who clears that bar. So for skilled immigration, I, you know, I think most people would agree that Einstein-level people should not have to wait, that if they want to move here, we should, hell, I'll drive the green card and deliver it to them personally. But you know, where is that bar? In other words, how high is the bar or how narrow is the definition of skills. There are lots of people, of course, many of them paid lobbyists for business that want to dramatically expand employment-based immigration to serve the interests of their clients by lowering wages. But, you know, that's an argument you can make. You want to set the bar for skills low and they want to let everybody in rather than managing immigration through waiting lists. And this is something I really did learn from the Jordan Commission is they specifically talked about how we should not be managing immigration levels 
through the mechanism of waiting lists. You end up essentially over-promising and under-delivering immigration. So people will say, well, there's this category for the adult brothers and sisters of adult U.S. citizens. That's the fourth family category in current law. And yet there's like a million people on the waiting list. It's not a backlog. It's not a manner of the bureaucracy not rubber stamping paperwork fast enough. It's just that there's a numerical cap of 60,000 a year. And if there's more demand, then you wait in line. That's not a good way to run a railroad. The immigration expansionists agree, and they just say everybody who wants to come in should just be let in all the time. They want immigration of, you know, three, four, five, six million, really with no limit at all. The other way to approach that, of course, is you just get rid of that category because there's no way we're ever going to let in all the people who could come in and might want to come in through that category. What you do is you eliminate it. And so anyway, I mean, this is a long way of saying that the Jordan Commission, I think, had very much the right approach in saying that the way you think about numbers is bottom up. Which categories of people do you want to let in and then let in all of them every year? rather than pick a number, however high number or low number, and then just shoehorning, you know, everybody into it. And, you know, that's something, that kind of discussion doesn't happen very often. That's the kind of thing that presidential commissions studying an issue like this are supposed to do. And the Jordan Commission, I think, was very effective at that. I probably would, for my tastes, I think they still under their commission recommendations, would have let in more people than I would prefer, so that they set some of the bars lower than I would have set them. But it's really not so much the substance of it, but the way you think about it. And I would just recommend to listeners, whatever they think about immigration, uh, or whatever they think about the level that they would prefer, the level they would like of immigration, to think about it this way, to think about it from bottom up. Who do you want to let in? and how much immigration you think we should have, but by looking at it from a bottom-up approach rather than setting a number and kind of forcing the rest of it to fit that number. That's all for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, and I will join you next week for another episode. Thank you.